Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with postdoctoral fellows involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related research so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. With the promise of at least two highly effective vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, we still need to make it through the holiday season before these and other vaccines might be available. On November 16th, 2020, we talked with Dr. Ben Israelo, an infectious diseases fellow in the Iwasaki lab at Yale, who has developed small animal models for SARS-CoV-2 and is using them to understand immune correlates of COVID-19 disease. Ben did his undergraduate studies at Washington University in St. Louis, and then his MD-PhD degree at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where he studied hepatitis C virus. He is currently at Yale in the Physician Scientist Research Program, where he has completed two years of internal medicine training and is in his third year of infectious disease training. Hi, Ben. I'm happy to have you with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, how did you become interested in medicine and virology research? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I kind of got into that through um, my interest in infectious diseases. Um, I, I went to Mount Sinai to, to pursue my uh, infectious disease, to pursue my MD-PhD program. At that time, I knew I wanted to do infectious diseases. Um, at Mount Sinai, the microbiology department is mostly viruses um, and, or all virology. And so it was, you know, I, I, I realized that that's what I'd be studying and, but quickly learned that viruses are fascinating. Um, and, you know, the history of humans interacting with viruses um, really piqued my interest. Um, how I got interested in infectious diseases is a little longer. From a very young age, I'm, you know, I've been very interested in um, science and, and started doing lab research as a high school student. Um, I, I took a summer doing lab research. Um, actually, I went to Israel to the Technion Institute and did a summer research program during, doing molecular biology. Um, then, you know, started, um, before I started undergrad, I joined the lab at Columbia University, um, after I had been, had already done some biologic research doing kind of more genetics research in diabetes. And so getting to Wash U, um, when I started there, I knew I wanted to like, continue research. And so I found a lab actually over there at the medical campus um, doing neuronal stem cell differentiation. Um, so embryonic stem cells were kind of, and differentiation and regenerative medicine was was kind of new and looking very promising. And, and you know, I was finding it super interesting. Um, I transitioned into another lab when I, while I was an undergrad doing more systems biology work in a plant biology research lab at the main campus. Um, however, towards the end of my time uh, at WashU, I was taking a class on kind of like sociology of, of diseases um, or the social impact of diseases. And one section of that was on HIV. Um, and we read a lot of the research by Paul Farmer 
as well as the biography about him, uh, Mountains Beyond Mountains. And that that like totally cl clarified for me, like, you know, I'd, I'd bounced around from a, diff a few different like lab topics, but it, it certainly clarified for me that I wanted to do infectious disease research and um, wanted to put my efforts towards, you know, uh, battling diseases that affected the whole world. So I guess maybe a little bit more specifically, how did you identify the various um, places that you ended up? So the various labs or the various programs, how, what sort of how did you decide on those particular places? I guess once I got to Wash, I, I went to Wash U as a for my undergrad because of the world class, uh, the world class biological sciences they have there. You know, I was coming from, I grew up in New York area in the New York suburbs areas, um, and looking around, I, I was looking around the country. I, I wanted to leave this area and kind of explore a little more. Um, visited. Uh, the university and you know the the resources that WashU puts towards sciences and etc is you know they 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 really you know prioritize it and so I I definitely knew I wanted to be at a place that prioritized what my goals were um, which were you know uh, biological sciences and research um, and so I ended up there. When when I was in high school, I was I was interested in neuroscience, and so that's why that's how I got into that first kind of uh, embryonic stem cell lab um, or a neuroscience lab um, differentiating you know neurons. Um, I was there for two years. I, I learned a ton about differentiation and 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 those and as well as like patch clamping and you know neuron techniques and stuff like that. Um, during that time, there was, I guess, microarrays were starting to become more popular. And so we were doing microarray work uh, with some of our differentiating neurons under like different conditions. Uh, there was a summer research program at WashU called, through the NSF called Fiber, which was like Frontiers in Integrative uh, Systems Biology or something along those lines. And so it was a summer program where, you know, I'd be taking classes and doing research in um, systems biology. So learning how to interpret kind of more large scale data sets. Um, and I thought, you know, A, I could apply that to the, the, the neuron differentiation work that I was doing. Uh, and B, this is like a great opportunity to both collaborate with people I wouldn't normally. So people in, statistics and mathematical modeling, et cetera, and, and, and learn these new skills of kind of more systems approaches to biology. Um, I ended up staying in the lab, in that lab, because I, I enjoyed the work and found it interesting. And it kind of gave more avenues to continue this kind of exploration of systems biology. Um, I guess I, I kind of mentioned how I went from there into kind of infectious disease, but for a while, I was deciding between a PhD program or an MD PhD program. I kind of came to it more from research and I was definitely um, motivated or in, enticed or intrigued into medicine from what I learned about the history of HIV and as well as infectious diseases. How did you get into your current lab? Or how do you get into your postdoc lab? At Mount Sinai, um, I knew I, did 
my PhD research on viruses, um, on hepatitis C, um, the transition from your PhD to your back to MD, um, the last phase of your MD during an MD PhD program is when you get into the clinical world. Um, and I kind of went into that with an open mind saying like, you know, I'm in, I think I'm interested in infectious disease, at least from a research perspective, but let's see what the medicine's about. And, you know, from rotation to rotation, I, I continue to be like, oh, I really like the infectious disease aspect. I, um, this is what I'm interested in. Um, so I continued with that. And I joined Yale's physician scientist track, um, which is a, I guess they call it a short track. Um, where you reduce your in, internal medicine time from three years to two years. Um, and then they add an extra year of research onto your, so it's still six years, like a three plus three, but it's more like a two plus four. Um, and, and so I, that's, I came to Yale because I, because I had been doing virology and I knew I wanted to do, to kind of expand that more into immunology and the immunobiology department and here is, you know, is, is world-class and, and very impressive. Um, I wanted to do viral immunology. And so it, that naturally led me to the lab of Akiko Osaki. Um, not just in terms of the work that she does, does but, you know, in talking to people around here and um, everyone's, everyone I talked to was like, you need to join <laughs> Akiko's lab. She's, you know, doing amazing stuff. Um, and especially for me, who's wanting to, you know, branch out from being more, you know, a molecular virologist to to increasing my my skills and my knowledge of of immunology and be, to be able to kind of more apply them um, was was clear. Great. Um, so, can you I guess tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing in her lab? So, either I guess pre COVID maybe, and then uh, and more recently on COVID related research. Yeah, absolutely. So. I joined Akiko's lab in August um, before the pandemic. And so I was not there for that long before the pandemic hit, but I, I joined to kind of continue doing some viral pathogenesis work. So part of my PhD on hepatitis C, I was looking at how inter different interferons are induced by the virus. And so I, I wanted to continue that, but into to animal models and looking at how the role that interferons play in pathogenesis of, of viral infected of viral infections. They, they obviously play an important role in preventing viral infections, but they, uh, they also, you know, play a role in, in pathogenesis. And so some people in the lab in the years before I had got joined, um, had been doing some Zika work, um, looking at interferon pathogenesis, in, you know, in the perinatal period. And so pathogenesis towards the, the fetus more um, than, you know, the, I guess, the other host, um, the mother. Um, and so I can, I wanted to kind of continue some of that work and looking at how, what the role of like different interferons play in, in healthy uh, or not healthy pregnancies. And so had started with that. And and I hadn't really done any mouse work before or, you know, had done minimal flow cytometry. And so, you know, this was definitely a learning uh, experience, um, especially also, you know, having been out of research for, you know, five years being back in the clinical world. And so during that time, I was 
um, doing experiments, learning. Um, and in January, when we first started to see this happening, you know, Kiko and I had a had a discussion about, you know, should we start investigating, maybe go doing some research here? Um, Akiko, I guess, had, had had difficulty getting highly getting doing research on highly pathogenic viruses in the past, in terms of what our our environmental health and safety allowed. She had tried um, doing some H five N one work in the past that you know never was allowed to happen, and so she was a little hesitant about you know jumping in and was like, you know, if you're interested, you know, we, we can, we can start this. And so I started investigating this and what to do. And, you know, the, it, it became clear, especially in, about, about how to research this, especially considering the tools that the Iwasaki lab had uh, in the mice colony and, and the, that we, we needed to be able to study this virus in a mouse. Um, and so the first, the first, projects that we started on were developing a mouse model. Um, we took a few roads towards that, including, you know, viral adaptation, as well as uh, the paper that we published on using an adeno-associated viral vector um, um, to, to be able to promote viral infection in, in mice of, you know, different strains. Um, and so that's kind of how it led me towards, you know, developing a mouse model and and furthermore studying the role of interferon in that. Um, what we've been getting more into recently is trying to better, we've done a lot with the pathogenesis of the virus, um, uh, both in mice as well as in, in humans. So once we started having a lot of cases in Connecticut uh, in, in April and May, Akiko and a bunch of other uh, researchers here in public health and other departments kind of got together and developed a uh, biorepository for coronavirus patient samples, mostly hospitalized coronavirus patient samples. And so there was a very talented uh, postdoc in our lab who's kind of leading that. Um, and I was helping them doing, you know, data extraction from charts and getting that information. So, you know, between the human coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2 work and the mouse stuff, we, we really saw that a lot of the questions now are beginning to revolve around what constitutes a successful, you know, clearance of the virus as well as uh, adaptive immunity to the virus. So how, you know, it, it's from early studies, it seemed clear that most infected people developed adaptive immunity to the virus, but not everyone, um, had successful outcomes. And so the questions of, uh, that we're starting to address are, you know, what constitutes a successful adaptive immune response? Um, and then furthermore, you know, what, const what, what, uh, what controls the adaptive immune response? And so those are the, some of the questions we're starting to try to answer right now. There's a lot of <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 <laughs> research going on in the lab right now. So I guess I'm um, thinking more broadly, um, what was the most exciting science moment in your career so far? So it doesn't necessarily have to be earth shattering, but something that was exciting to you. Um, I think it's, it's usually when you get unexpected results um, is what I've found. And so, um, well, so part of the, the initial part of my work on hepatitis C virus was looking at different host factors that were required for hepatitis C virus replication. Uh, 
And one of them is a, a so hepatitis C is very liver specific, um, human liver specific, and part of the cell the cell tropism are some of the entry receptors that are liver specific. But another one is a microRNA called MIR122. Um, it's very conserved from like zebrafish through humans. Um, and the virus is adapted to utilize this microRNA, not by the microRNA physically binding to the viral RNA. And it looks like it acts to protect it, but may also act as a translation replication switch and a few other things. And so we were working on this. Um, an MD-PhD friend of mine had been developing a microRNA screen um, where he'd built a library of microRNA uh, decoys and needed to kind of validate that. And I was like, oh, we could do that with hepatitis C. It'll kill all the cells except the microRNA MIR-122 um, decoy expressing cells. And so we did this, we, we got some hits that were interesting for, you know, cell survival, et cetera, et cetera. Um, nothing too earth shattering, but in our control cells, which were the, the population of MIR-122 expressing cells, they started, we started to see that they started to get infected by the virus and which was, it, which was very unexpected. And, and so we sequenced the, we were like, this can't be true. So we repeated it. And <laughs> again, the virus after, you know, passaging the virus on these cells, it, it infected them and we sequenced the virus and sure enough, like the virus had developed mutations to allow it to adapt, to be able to replicate, you know, start almost in the absence of microRNA MIR-122, which, you know, was completely surprising and, you know, <laughs> working towards figuring that out and, and doing experiments and, and, you know, figuring out what that means was, was really, really important. I, I think it was also, it was cool because it was a project where, you know, I was collaborating with, you know, uh, you know, a fellow student that we were friends with and just the whole collaborative process was, yeah, it was, it was great. Cool. Um, so I guess on the converse side, what's been the most difficult thing you've had to overcome as a scientist and how have you overcome it? It's always difficult to, as an MD PhD, it's difficult to transition back and forth. Um, you know, when you're during your PhD, you like, you, you defend your thesis, you're, you, you're the smartest person in your, you know, specific field. And then you go back into the clinic where you're a medical student and, you know, no less than all the other medical students because you've been at it for a while. And so that's always difficult. You know, you learn to become humble very quickly. Um, and then again, like, you know, coming back here and joining the lab, it, you know, you're like, I, I did know how to do research at one point. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of questioning yourself about, or at least for me, there's been a lot of questioning, like, you know, was I just lucky during my PhD? Do I know how to do this? Like, um, I guess a lot of imposter syndrome <laughs> that, that comes up. Um, but you kind of just keep going and <laughs> pretend that it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't exist. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, are, are there specific things that you do to sort of overcome that sort of transition back and forth? Is, is there strategies that you use? Um, I just try to remind myself that, you know, you've, you've made transit, these major transitions before and some, for some reason or another, they turned out to be successful and let's just cross our fingers and keep going and hope that 
they'll be successful. I, I have a supportive partner um, and now I have a, you know, a two-year-old son. And so while the transitions, you know, you could imagine being harder with them, they're, you know, they having them at home and having, a, you know, having a, a support system, I think is, is, is really important and being able to be like, come home and, you know, have my son, you know, say amazing random things to me kind of puts things into perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I guess more personally, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected you as an individual? And then I guess since you're a physician, do you have any sort of um, insight into how it's affected, you know, life as a doctor? Yeah. I, so I get, you know, I was paying very close attention in January and then in February as this, you know, the outbreak in Italy was happening. I was getting increasingly concerned that this, this was not going to be isolated in, in any respect. And so I think in the last week of January, I wrote an email to my family and friends saying like, everybody, you, you need to get ready for this. Um, and so for the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I, you know, I'm a, I'm an infectious disease doctor, but I'm also a, a partner, a husband, a son, a, nie a nephew, a cousin, a et cetera, friend. And so, you know, while I've been a doctor for a lot of people, I'd never been a doctor for so many <laughs> that I was related to um, all of a sudden. And so that, that was a huge change and very striking, you know, as the uncertainty of this was clear and profound, um, you know, people, people just didn't know what to do. Um, you know, people are calling asking, Oh, can I like, you know, things benign, you know, like very simple things. Like, can I go out to the store? Like, should I, you know, all those questions that we, people were addressing, <laughs> like, um, you know, I was getting those calls. I was also getting those calls because, at Yale, they set up a, a call center um, and wanted infectious disease uh, physicians staffing it. And so as a research fellow who wasn't, in, you know, in the hospital 100% of the time, um, we were helping to staff that. Um, and so getting those questions from doctors and like, and everything. And the questions from doctors were different. They were like, how should I structure my office? Um, how should, you know, do I need to cancel all my visits right now, you know? And those were those decisions were changing from day to day, week to week. Um, and so it was something you know you you don't get trained for and you don't expect to have to deal with. Um, so you know it was it was certainly interesting and and challenging um, to have to be dealing with that on the one hand and also trying to get research moving uh, as fast as we could as the virus was coming and the university was shutting down and. Um, all that. Um, so yeah, in terms of like, um, you know, how as a doctor, you know, it's, it's been, I think it's been hard for a lot of us, especially now, even harder because we're seeing these, the, you know, the, the public health maneuvers that could have helped prevent these these secondary and tertiary outbreaks that are, you know, we're seeing a huge spike again in Connecticut. Um, you know, we didn't, you know, I think Connecticut slowly opened and they were good to, 
and we didn't have a second spike or this is now our second spike, but we're, you know, we're the hospital, we have about half as many hospitalized COVID patients currently as we did during the peak in, in like in April. And, and that's only going up every day. Um, it's just very, I think it's, it's very disheartening. <laughs> and, you know, I, I heard somebody mentioning this on like in, in April and May, we were the, uh, you know, support our heroes, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's just not the narrative right now. So, um, for whatever reason, you know, for better, for, for better, or for worse. Um, and so it's, I think it's, it's, it's difficult to have to go through this again. Yeah. A little yeah. post-traumatic. <laughs> yeah. 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 How, how do you, so I guess, how do you take care of yourself sort of mentally not, you know, to get, get through this? Yeah. I've, I've been trying, I've been trying to more prioritize, you know, getting family time on, on like weekends and, you know, not being in the lab 24 seven, um, especially now after, after there was that intense rush during the first six or so months, um, you know, try to spend time with my wife and my son and, and, you know, really de decompress and, and leave the lab for a little bit because, you know, this is, we're going to be in this for a little while longer and, you know, it's a, it's a race, but it's a marathon. And so keeping, yeah, yeah. keeping your endurance is, is important. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to tap out at mile 12. Right. Yeah. So I guess, um, uh, sort of to follow up on sort of safety issues as a virologist and infectious disease doctor, how do you make decisions about how to keep yourself and your family safe? So what kind of, how do you, how do you think about that risk? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to stay on top of cases, you know, because it, the risk changes daily and it, it really depends on what's going on in your area. Um, I mean, I definitely recommend to people listening because I get calls from people, friends in different parts of the country. I, you know, I'm not always up to date. I say, you know, really listen to your public health people. Um, they're the ones who are staying on top of this. They're the ones who, you know, just just follow their recommendations um, you know, for me, you know, I, I, I am also following most of those, following those recommendations, um, trying to, it's always a balance about safety and, and versus, you know, living your life. Like my son is, is currently still in daycare, but our daycare is, is very small. And, um, and so the, you know, we're weighing those risks currently and talking to other people who are, whose children are in school about weighing the, those risks about, you know, should we be thinking about taking them out soon, um, et cetera. Um, and so again, for me, I, you know, I, I just try to stay on top of what's going on um, in the community. That's the, that's the major indicator of, of risk. You know, it's been a little, it's interesting because during our first, during the first wave in April and May, we didn't have testing. And so the numbers now definitely look a lot worse, but I think what's more indicative of what's going on is the hospitalization rate. Um, and so, you know, it's clear that, you know, this is totally out of control again um, in our area. And so um, I think we're, we're, you know, paying attention, you know, for me, you know, I, 
we're we're not we've decided that we're just not you know going to be celebrating thanksgiving with other people this year because you know it it just doesn't make sense um at this point in the pandemic where we are where where connecticut is um in terms of how bad it is and you know we're still two weeks away <laughs> from thanksgiving it's only gonna I, I can only see it getting worse currently and so you know we may try to see people outside, um, you know, but, you know, it's too cold to really have a Thanksgiving meal outside, at, at least at this point. <laughs> All right. Well, great. We're uh, wrapping up a little bit. Um, any last messages for our listeners um, as we're heading into Thanksgiving? Um, there's now good reports that we may potentially have two vaccines, but obviously not until April, maybe next summer for the majority of people. So any thoughts about the future of the pandemic? Where do you see us going? Yeah, I, I definitely think the vaccine data is, is super, super encouraging. Um, you know, I, I think when I, you know, based on the fact of how quickly this, we were trying to get vaccines out, you know, I would be, ha- I would have been happy if it was like 50 or 60% effective seeing, you know, 90% results is very, very encouraging, especially to, get to kind of like get this under control and get our lives back to normal. I think, you know, we're going to be dealing with SARS-CoV-2 for a long time. Um, You know, questions I think still remain about the durability of protection of these vaccines. Um, You know, I think obviously questions still remain about like, will this data hold in larger groups? Um, But I think at least the starting point of 90, you know, 90, 95% uh, is, is a, is really, really promising. Um, and so I, I think then, you know, again, the, we're going to be until, until we get those vaccines on a more, you know, systemic, you know, wide scale to be available for people. Um, the, the public health measures are what's going to, you know, keep us safe. And so we're obviously wearing masks, you know, avoiding, (laughs) again, depending on where you are, avoiding maybe even small social gatherings. Um, And so that's, I think, where we are right now in Connecticut. Um, I wouldn't have said that two months ago. I would have said, you know, small social gatherings are, you know, great, you know, whatever, perfectly acceptable. But right now where we have just rampant widespread, um, you know, of the virus and there's no like clear super spreader events that we're tracking them to it's they're all small gatherings of of people and when it is this spread you you just we have to we have to kind of reduce transmission rates and the the way to do that is you know stopping stopping contact great thanks for talking with us today Ben is currently using small animal models that he developed and human patient samples to understand what contributes to a good outcome and protective immunity following SARS-CoV-2 infection. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcasts, or at lmtv.podbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologists at gmail.com.